0: Friends, we have reached the final sermon in our series on lament. During this last period of time, we have been meditating from the Psalms on the topic of lament, trying to be discipled by the psalmists. And how do we approach God in the midst of our seasons of sorrow? We saw from Psalm 13 that when these seasons of sorrow come, we must turn to our God. That that lament involves turning to God in a way that expresses faith in him. We saw from Psalm 10 that when God seems to ignore injustice, we must remember that he sees and will judge. We lament injustice and we lament sorrows like injustice because we believe that there is a God in heaven who sees and who judges. If there wasn't, then this would be just crying into our pillow and it would be kind of pointless. But we saw from Psalm 69 that sometimes, as believers, we will bear the reproach of Christ. And when we do, when that unbearable reproach of Christ breaks our heart, we must take heart in his saving faithfulness. Part of learning to lament is learning as Christians with broken hearts to still take heart. We really dove more into that last week as we saw from Psalm 88 that sometimes the darkness doesn't lift. Sometimes the reality is that even though we lament, there is no movement to joy immediately or even necessarily in this life. We saw from Psalm 88 that when the darkness will not lift, God is still our salvation. There is still only one place where we can find the words of life and hope. That is in Jesus Christ. Today, I want to conclude our series with Psalm 22. And I chose this psalm for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons I want us to look at this psalm is this psalm most directly connects our lament with the cross of Christ. We're going to see that, but I don't want to just jump straight there. I'm sure as you heard Tim read verse 1, if you've read the Gospels recently, you probably recognize that quote, right? That's a very, very recognizable statement of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to go there, but I don't want to go there first. I don't want us to miss what Psalm 22 has to say to David and to us before we get to Christ. Because I think we'll understand the fullness of what it has to say about the cross of Christ if we look at it first through the lens of David. So that's one reason. The other big reason I chose Psalm 22 is because Psalm 22 hits on the biggest question that most of us have when it comes to seasons of sorrow and responding with lament. And that's the question of why, right? Why has God done this? Why has God put us here? That might even be a lingering question for you from last week. As we thought about the life of William Coper, why would God bring about in his life such deep, deep darkness For his entire life. Why would God do that? Why would God forsake. Any of his people. Even for a moment. And this psalm deals directly with that question. This psalm isn't going to give you. The exact details. Of why you might be experiencing. Seasons of sorrow. Or why someone else might be experiencing. Seasons of sorrow around you. But what this psalm will do. In answering that question why. Will give you broad brush strokes. To put the context of your Seasons of sorrow and your suffering and your lamenting, especially when the darkness doesn't lift, in the context of God's eternal plan. I, I enjoy um, the Lion of Judah as we sang that, and we talked about the universal praise uh, that that is destined for all, as the as the whole earth responds to the cry of the angels. Holy is the holiest Lamb. Like that is so exciting and so motivating for us as Christians. And this psalm gets to that, but it's got to walk through the darkness of lament before it gets there. So we will get to that kind of thing. But first, we're going to walk through the psalm and ask the question, why would God forsake his people, even for a moment? We're going to ask it in the terms of David, because this psalm is a psalm of David. And in the beginning of the psalm, he says, why have you forsaken me? So we're going to ask with him, why would God, even for a moment, forsake his anointed king? The one he had chosen, the man after his own heart whom he'd chosen to lead his people Israel this is the question on David's mind and we're going to walk through as he laments over this question and then we're going to see God answer him and then we're going to see how he responds to that answer and that's going to kind of fill in these questions of why but before we get there we need to walk through the lament so that's where we're going to start at the beginning in verse 1 of psalm 22. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I want to make the argument as we look at David's lament that God really did forsake David. And in order to make that argument, we have to deal with the question, did God really forsake David or did he just feel forsaken? I think the answer depends on what we mean by forsaken. When I think of forsaken, I tend to think of like someone has wholly cast off someone else, right? Left them completely behind. There is no hope and no following up. But that's not the way God talks about forsaking his people in the Old Testament. Sometimes he says to them, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And other times he says, I have forsaken you because you have forsaken me. We see in the Old Testament that the idea of God forsaking his people is much broader than at least I tend to think about it. And I'm assuming that you tend to think about it too. That when God is forsaking his people or when David says, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, why have you abandoned me? Why do you, as he says later in the psalm, stand far off? Why, in other words, are you not near me, God? You have promised to be near me. You've promised to be with your people, and that's our greatest hope. Why are you not? So it's not in the sense of God never again wanting anything to do with David. But he did forsake him in standing far off from him. We talked about this last week in Psalm 88, when we talked about sometimes God may, even in a Christian's life, remove all subjective sense of his care, of his presence, of his kindness towards you. Even though you know God is caring and kind and and all present, you may have no sense that he is. That doesn't mean it's just your feelings, right? That really may, may be what God is doing to you at the time, as we saw in Psalm 88. This is what I think it looks like for God to momentarily forsake his people. So I think it's important to recognize, first of all, that this is not a rhetorical question that David is asking. David really was forsaken by God for a time. And I think it's instructive for us to learn how he responds to that. See, David responds like we've been learning to respond from the Psalms. When these seasons of sorrow come, when you feel forsaken by God, how do you respond? You lament. And that's exactly what David does in the process of this Psalm. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, he turns to God. Just like we've been seeing lament in the other Psalms, you have to turn to God in faith. Notice David says, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? There's little seeds of faith in David that assumes that this God he's talking to is his God. And that he should not, therefore, have forsaken him. There is some kind of relationship here. And David is turning to him and asking and saying, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far off from saving me from the words of my groaning? He says in verse 2, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night... But I find no rest. As we've seen in the lament psalms, we turn to God in lament and then we bring our complaints to him. And that's what David has already started to do in verse two here, right? He says he cries day and night, but God does not answer. He finds no rest. Notice how similar this is to the other psalms of lament that we've already covered, right? In Psalm 13, one, the beginning of this psalm. The psalmist writes, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will you be far away? He says in Psalm 10, right? These same kind of complaints are coming back again. God, you are distant from me. You're standing far off and it's breaking my heart. And, uh, you know, like the psalmist says, like David says later in Psalm 22, I'm surrounded by enemies. I have no one to help. I need you, God. Where are you? He's complaining, first of all, that God is silent. Then down in verses 6 to 8, he complains some more, brings these complaints to the Lord, these concerns, and says that he is being mocked. Look there, he says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're mocking him for trusting in the Lord. We saw that, remember, in Psalm 69. As the, the psalmist's devotion, zeal for the Lord increased, as he did things like humbling himself, putting on sackcloth and fasting, what happened? The mocking increased, right? They ended up making drinking songs about him. Because they mocked, they mocked him because he was trusting in the Lord. And we see that here as well. Then we see in verses 12 to 18 not only is God silent and not only is David being mocked but David is actually being physically assaulted. Verse 12 he says this, "Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me." He's not talking about literal bulls, right? He's comparing his enemies to these dangerous and powerful animals and he's saying I'm surrounded They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. David's not keeping his metaphor straight, and that's okay. Don't get lost here, right? I'm surrounded. They're like powerful bulls. I can't get out. I'm surrounded. They're like roaring lions that rip and tear. They want to eat me. They want to devour me. They want to hurt me. I am poured out like water, verse 14, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The description here is too, is too vivid for David merely to be talking metaphorically, Right? Like he's not, I mean, obviously he's talking metaphorically in the terms of that his enemies aren't actually bulls and aren't actually lions and aren't actually dogs, but he's not really talking metaphorically in terms of being pierced, in terms of having them take his clothing and divide him. He's being robbed. He's being abused. They're staring at him and gloating over him because he's, they can count all his bones. He's been suffering so long. He's lost weight. These verses and this description of David's suffering ring some bells if we think about the Psalms we've already seen as well. In Psalm thirteen two, the complaint is that the, the Psalmist's enemies are going to be exalted over him, right? Just like these enemies being exalted, David is the one who is powerless. The enemies are powerful over him. Or Psalm 10, which compares the wicked person to a lion that lies in wait, For the weak one to come along and then pounces on him to devour him. Even here, David says, these guys are like lions waiting to rip me apart. Or think about last week, Psalm 88, when the psalmist said that God put him in the pit. And here we see, even in this psalm, in verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. I bring that up because I think it's important for us to recognize this lament as Psalm 22 is a, is a uh, prototypical lament for us. This, this Psalm is bringing in all of these other laments that we've already seen. There's a strong connection, as we've seen, between our seasons of sorrow and the seasons of sorrow that are spoken about in the Psalms. And that connection is super strong here. There are experiences in here. You may have not have been surrounded by a company of evildoers. Who's actually physically assaulting you, right? But you you do know what it's like to have an enemy exalted over you. You may not have experienced the kind of outright verbal mocking. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. But you know what it's like to bear reproach for the sake of the name of Christ. You may not have experienced the kind of utter forsakenness that David talks about at the beginning of this psalm, but you know what it's like to feel far from God, right? All of these kind of sorrows that weigh on us and more are taken up in this psalm. There's a strong connection between all of the laments of God's people, including yours. And that's important because then we can enter into this psalm and hear David's question, why God are you doing this? And we can hear it address our questions as well in our lament. Why, God, are you doing this? Why, God, would you forsake your anointed king? Why would you forsake any of your people? David asked this question over and over, but you notice I skipped some verses. And I'm going to come back to them right now. Because what's happening in the middle of his complaining, he keeps coming back to God. God. Notice there's this pattern in the psalm. He starts out in verses 1 and 2. Why have you forsaken me, God? And then verse 3, the first thing we see, yet you, yet you are holy. And then verse 6, but I, goes back to his complaints. And then verse 9, yet you, yet you, God. And then verse 12, he starts talking about all of his enemies surrounding him and how he himself is despairing. And then look at verse 19. But you, O Lord. There is this pattern that keeps reoccurring. Remember, we talked about this in lament. We have a turn to God. We bring our complaints to him. And the next thing we do is we ask him for deliverance and trust in his promises. Lament, we've talked about, remember, is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in the promises of God. And that's what David is doing in here. As he's bringing his pains to the Lord, as he's crying out to him, he keeps turning back to God in trust. Right? Look at verse 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David is saying here, yet you are God. And you have been trustworthy to all of your people throughout history. David is appealing to the history of God's people that he knows, same history you and I have access to in God's word, that we know God has been faithful to keep his promises. But notice when David turns back to himself and looks at these people who are mocking him for trusting in the Lord, it sure doesn't look like God is being trustworthy and faithful to his promises, right? So he's still wrestling through this. You are holy, God. You are trustworthy. But I'm a worm and not a man. It doesn't, it doesn't apply to me. They're mocking me. And then he remembers again as he turns to the Lord. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Notice. He's thinking through. They are mocking me for trusting you because it doesn't seem like you're trustworthy right now. But if I think about my own past, I know you're trustworthy. David's appealing to his own history to say that God is trustworthy because he has been from the beginning of his life until now. So even though now he is forsaken, he knows that it's not because God is not trustworthy. Because he knows from his own experience. And so that motivates him in verse 11 to start crying out. To start asking. He's building his trust in God because of God's character. And now he's asking God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Verses 12 to 18. He expands on that. Right? I'm surrounded. I'm being abused. I have no power. I'm melting like wax. I'm laying even in the dust of death. In verse 19, he turns again to God. Even in spite of all that. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. David starts just. Plain old asking God for deliverance. But notice there's an increase in trust. Even in verse 19. As David has been turning to the Lord. His trust has slowly been building. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy. He's saying I'm turning to you. Yet you are God. All of these things are true. Why have you forsaken me? Yet you are God. And then in verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. Notice the the difference in there. Yet you are holy. Yet you are God. Yet you are trustworthy to all those people. Now he's saying, yet you're the one that took me from my mother's womb. Yet you are my God. There's a growing intimacy. There's There's a growing desperation that builds in David. A growing intimacy with the Lord that culminates in verse 19. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. Remember what I said before. If we see Lord in capital letters like that. All capital letters. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. That's the God who is bound by his promises to be faithful to his people. David is saying, yet you are God. Yet you are my God. Yet you are Yahweh. He's appealing to the covenant relationship he has with God. To say, God save me. Rescue me. There is no one else to help. I need you. Do not be far off from me. That's the main thing David wants, isn't it? In verses 11 and verses 19, that was his main complaint at the beginning. In verse 1, God stands far off from saving him. Be not far off from me. The main thing David wants and needs in the midst of all of the suffering is the presence of God. The saving presence of God. And so he cries out over and over for that presence, for that help. In the middle of his crying out, God answers him. Notice how abrupt of a change it feels like if we get to verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. What just happened? Wasn't David just surrounded and crying out for deliverance? There's actually a little clue in the text for us. That shows us that God answered David. In verse 21, David says, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then the ESV translates, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's a a very confusingly phrased verse in Hebrew. And so ESV is trying to help us out and trying to understand what's going on with the horns of the wild ox. We look above, right? He's surrounded by these bulls. So it's not hard to see how horns could gore him and pose a threat to him. In the Hebrew, though, the from the horns of the wild ox comes first. And then at the very end, you have this one single word. You have the ESV translates rescued. I would say, I would say answered. It's the word for answer. It's the same word up in verse two that says, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Here, at the end of verse 21, we have God answering David. See, in Hebrew, it's common to have parallel lines, right? We have all these parallel lines uh, right above verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. It's super common in poetry, particularly, to not have repeated verbs. And so in verse 20, we have deliver my soul from the sword... And then no verb in the next one, my precious life from the power of the dog. If you were in the New Testament class, you know that's not a complete sentence, right? So we need a verb in there. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dog. And in verse 21, we have the same thing. We have a verb, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then another from, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then we have that one single word standing alone, which is totally abnormal for Hebrew poetry, which is why the ESV translates it this way. But I think this is intentional by David. A one word line does not typically exist in poetry in Hebrew, except to draw massive attention to it and to say, this is the point. And that one word is answered. You have answered me. Not you will or not a request. Please, God, answer me, but you have answered me. Here we see that though David was forsaken by God and kept crying out in lament, that forsakenness only lasted for a time. God did indeed turn and answer David. And that's what everything else flows out of. I make this, I belabor this and make this point so strongly because I think... If we just understand it as rescued, then we still don't have an answer for the question why at the beginning of the song, right? But if we pair it with that beginning, God will not answer me. And now he has answered me. Then we have not only did God answer me with saving faithfulness, not only did God do something. But God is actually bringing to light. Why? Why all of this was going on? God answered at the right time. With saving faithfulness. And he also answered in a way that helps us see. Why God wouldn't indeed ever forsake anyone. Including his anointed king. And So I want us to see that next in these last few verses. We see three reasons in this last section. For why God would forsake his anointed king. The first one is in verses 22 to 24. David says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But has heard when he cried to him. Why is David saying all that? Why is he calling others to exalt the name of the Lord, because he has experienced God's saving faithfulness. And what did that bring him? Great joy, great joy. The first reason for why God would forsake his king is for the king's joy, for the king's joy in being rescued by God, in knowing a God, in knowing a God who does not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. Knowing a God who did not leave him in the dust of death, but who has indeed rescued him. Knowing experientially that God himself saves brings this king great joy. Such that he calls on everyone else to exalt this king. It brings him the kind of confident hope that God's people need. God is putting David in a position of being forsaken so that he will be brought to this kind of joy. This kind of joy that can only be experienced by those who have known what it is to have deep, deep sorrow and have the Lord meet them with saving faithfulness in the midst of that depth of sorrow. It's a unique kind of joy. It's a kind of joy that can't be had without the valley. And it's for this reason that God forsook his king. Reason number two is in verses 25 to 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. What's happening here is what was common in Hebrew culture. Which is if you cried out to God for deliverance. You often made vows that you would repay once God had acted. God, if you do this for me, I will do this, right? We sometimes do that too. We're not doing it necessarily out of religious reasons. We're doing it more just out of our desperation, right? But there was actually a category for this in the Old Testament, in Jewish law. That once you were delivered, you brought a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And that wasn't just a tiny little sacrifice. That was a feast that you invited others to come in and partake of. It was a feast of thanksgiving because God had acted on your behalf. And been faithful to his covenant. And so you brought this Thanksgiving feast. And you invited the poor and the weak and the afflicted. To come and celebrate with you. To encourage their hope and their faith. Reason number two here. That God would forsake his king. Is so that that king's joy may be shared. So that that king's joy may be shared. Notice. Notice. David is giving this praise in the midst of the great congregation. He's inviting others into this feast. This is so different from how he was just a little bit ago in this psalm, right? Forsaken by God, abandoned by everyone else, standing alone in the midst of mighty bulls and roaring lions and devouring dogs. And here he is taking the lead in thanksgiving in the midst of the congregation, sharing joy With others. Which makes it so much better right. Just ask the one who's alone. This kind of shared joy. Is multiplied joy. So God would forsake his king. For the king's joy. And so that that joy may be shared. And then the third reason. We see in verse 27 to 31. All the ends of the earth shall remember. And turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations. Shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. God would forsake his king for that king's joy. So that that joy may be shared. And so that joyful, hope-filled worship would fill the whole earth. So that joyful, hope-filled worship would fill the whole earth. That's the third reason. We see that in here. Verse 27, right? Talking about all families of the earth. All nations. All peoples. Coming to the Lord. Or, a little bit further down. All the prosperous... And all who bow down, or all who go down to the dust. And even those who could not keep themselves alive. Pictures both those whose life is going really well, and the completely destitute. And even those who could not keep themselves alive. Those who are dead. Even the dead will rise up and praise him. With joyful, hope-filled worship that fills the whole earth. Not only in this generation, in David's time but from generation to generation, right? That's what it means that in verse 30, posterity shall serve him or offspring. Children shall serve him. It'll be told to the coming generation, proclaimed to a people yet unborn. God would forsake his king so that this kind of joy-filled, hope-filled worship would fill the whole earth over and over and over again. What this means Is that God forsook his chosen king for a time for the joy of his people. This is ultimately what I want to argue with you this morning from this text. This is the main thing I want you to remember is that God brings momentary sorrow. Even deep sorrow for the everlasting joy of his people. That's the consistent testimony of scripture, and that's what Psalm 22 testifies to us, that God brings momentary sorrow. Even if it means he forsakes you for a time, he brings momentary sorrow for the everlasting joy of his people. The point of sorrow, then, when we see seasons of sorrow, when we see seasons of hardship and heartache and lament, the point is always aimed at joy doesn't feel like that in the time, but it always is. Because this is how God is working constantly. Listen to how he puts it in Lamentations 3.31-33. The Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God does not forsake because he merely is mad at you or doesn't like you or uh, has some kind of wickedness in his heart, right? He would forsake his king and he would forsake any of his people for the sake of theirs and others' everlasting joy. That's always what God is doing. This is Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. It doesn't feel good at the time. But this is the testimony of scripture about sorrow. That sorrow gives way to joy. That sadness gives way to happiness. Joy comes with the morning. This answer may not feel satisfying. You may think like William Coper did. That's good for David. But it's not good for me. Right? What about me? I want us to make the connection... From here, because this is just one psalm in the scripture, I want us to make the connection to the heart of scripture, the cross of Christ. Because this is true at the cross, just as it was true for David in Psalm 22. This is true at the cross. Turn with me for a minute to Mark 15. Mark chapter 15. In the gospel of Mark, as Jesus is headed to the cross, this psalm is picked up by Mark and used to describe the circumstances and sufferings of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus quotes this on the cross, but this psalm itself is actually repeatedly referenced in Mark 15. Look with me at Mark 15 verse 24. Mark fifteen twenty four, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, right? Just like verse 18, they're casting lots for my clothing. Look it down a little further at verse 29 to 30, verses 29 to 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They're crying out. They're wagging their heads at him. They're mocking him. Just like we saw in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. And then verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice something interesting about the way Mark describes these events. In, in the Psalm 22, we started out with God, why have you forsaken me? Right, And then we heard the description of all the things that are happening. Mark's actually doing it in reverse. First of all, the the last section of Psalm 22, David's description of suffering being surrounded. He quotes from first, those who are dividing the garments. And then he takes the middle section and quotes from it, those who are wagging their heads. And then he ends with the question. And I think he's doing that intentionally to emphasize the question my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same question David was asking, right? It's the same question Jesus asked. And it wasn't just Jesus quoting a psalm on the the cross to show us that he knows the psalms or to to fulfill prophecy. It was Jesus asking a genuine question, being forsaken by his father for time, for purpose. Mark does not, in this text, record the purpose. If you know the gospel of Mark, you know that it ends on kind of a giant question mark. Jesus is raised, and then he tells, he tells uh, his, his disciples to go and, and let other people know, and they scatter, and they're scared. And that's it. It ends. And I think Mark is drawing in Psalm 22 here, because he wants us to take and fill in the answer to this question. With the rest of what we've already seen from Psalm 22, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" The same answers that applied to David applied to Jesus. Jesus was forsaken why? For his joy. For his joy. Hebrews 12:2 he says that he endured the cross why? For the joy that was set before him. Right. He brought. He was brought to joy, being exalted to the right hand of the Father. Through the suffering of the cross. Why did God forsake his son? For his joy. Why did God forsake his son? Not only for his joy. But so that that joy may be shared. Right? What is the purpose of the cross? It's not just divine child abuse. Like some would say. There is a purpose in Jesus suffering and forsakenness. And that is to take on our sins. And to redeem us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse For us. And in doing that, what does Jesus do? He qualifies you and I to come and share at the Thanksgiving feast he throws. Right? Just like David said, I'm going to throw this feast and I'm going to invite the afflicted to come in. What do we see in the scriptures? We see this promise that all those who are in Christ Jesus will one day share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. A Thanksgiving feast like no other, where the joy Of knowing Christ, our joy will be full. Because it will be his joy overflowing into us. He was forsaken for his joy. He was forsaken so that joy may be shared. And he was forsaken so that joyful, hope-filled worship would fill the entire earth. Right? This is the plan. That God's kingdom, though it starts as a little stone like we've seen in Daniel. In Bible study on Wednesday nights. would, Would grow into a mountain that fills the earth the presence of the lord the knowledge of the lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea which leads to joy-filled praise because god is good and living in his kingdom is good and joyful for his saints friends i think this is important because what we see in here is jesus answering or jesus asking excuse me the ultimate why Why, God, have you forsaken me? All of our whys and all of our how longs and our laments are taken up in this one why. And all of the answers that we need are taken up in what Jesus himself did at the cross. There's a strong connection between our laments and between Christ's lament. And this means, I think, that there's a strong connection in the purpose behind our sorrows. And in the purpose behind Christ's sorrow. Because we're in Christ, right? We belong to him. And therefore, his suffering and his sorrow. Serves at least a similar purpose to ours. We are obviously not saviors. We are obviously not suffering for the redemption of the world. But in Christ, as his people, we suffer sorrows. And sometimes we experience even forsakenness by God. Because... Because of the goal of bringing us and all peoples to eternal joy. I can't tell you the specific reasons of your sorrow and suffering. But I can, I believe with confidence, tell you that the purpose over all of it is for your joy and the joy of God's people. The kind of joy that comes as you experience sorrow and you lament and you wait for answer and you show either persistent faith through waiting And you strengthen others faith or the kind of joy that comes when your prayers are answered and those who have been praying with you and lamenting with you for a long time. Rejoice with you and share that joy. Either way, God is working for our joy together and for his eternal glory. Because of these strong connections, friends, because of this connection between our lament in Psalm 22 and the cross of Christ, I encourage you to do what David did. Keep crying out to God. Keep saying, yes, this is true, but God, Lord, I am so forsaken. I feel so forsaken. I feel so alone. I feel surrounded. I'm experiencing tremendous suffering, but God, you're trustworthy, but God, you are good, but God rescue me. Continue to cry out because God himself does indeed answer. He has answered definitively in his son, Jesus, and he will accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for showing us definitively in Christ Jesus by raising him from the dead and showing us in the life of David, in the life of so many saints, that though you may indeed forsake for a time, That though indeed you may stand far off for a time. You do not forsake forever. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Of eternal life. And eternal joy. The knowledge that we have. Like we talked about even last week. That the darkness will not last forever. Because yours is a kingdom of light. I thank you Jesus. That you went before us. That you lamented. That you cried out to your father in faith. And I thank you that you as one who understands stand to intercede for us. I pray Jesus that you would help us cry out to you day and night. To persevere in lamenting the sorrows that we experience. And in crying out for deliverance. I thank you for the hope that only you can provide, and I pray that you would cause it to grow and grow and grow, and I pray that we would take joy at being part of that worldwide worship as your glory covers the earth. We pray this in your name, amen.